Here's a few quick notes about the show. Southern Girl Crime Stories is a podcast focused mostly on lesser-known true crime cases, consisting of cold cases, soft cases, identified Jane and John Doe's, along with missing persons and murder victims. You can follow the show on social media, on Instagram at Southern Girl Crime Stories, on Twitter at SG Crime Stories, or search Facebook for Southern Girl Crime Stories. If you're interested in getting some merch, visit my YouTube channel, or you can donate directly via Venmo or PayPal following the links in the description. You can submit case suggestions to southerngirlcrimestories at gmail.com or DM me on social media. Please be sure to check out my YouTube channel for these stories along with photos of victims, suspects, locations of murders, and more. At the age of 29, Benny Scruggs was living in the Pioneer Village Mobile Home Park at 240 Travis Drive in Wisconsin Rapids, Wisconsin, with his wife Yvonne. Shortly after 1 a.m. on July 17, 1985, Benny and his wife returned home from a bar named Lance's Never End. Less than two hours later, at 3 a.m., Yvonne called a neighbor for help. When the neighbor, Donald Meyer, arrived, he found Benny dying from a stab wound to the chest. A butcher knife was reported missing from the Scruggs' home, but never recovered. The police even drained the pond behind the mobile home park, looking for the murder weapon with a metal detector, but they were still unable to find it. Investigators noted that Yvonne's story at this scene didn't add up. First, she told officers that at some point after the babysitter left, Benny had fallen asleep, but she stayed up, and eventually, she heard the couple's two-year-old son crying. Then, she claimed she'd got up to look in on the child and spent about 10 minutes in his room before feeling something was off. She then headed back to the bedroom, but on her way, she noticed a shovel strangely leaning against the fridge and the trailer door open. This is when she allegedly called her neighbor. In a later interview, Yvonne said that both she and Benny had fallen asleep and their crying two-year-old walked into the bedroom, waking them both up. Then, she said, she had taken the child back to his room, waited 10 minutes, noticed the shovel and the door, and then checked on Benny. That's when she said she found her husband in a pool of blood and called the neighbor. The neighbor, however, said Yvonne never told him that Benny had gotten stabbed. She would later have another version of events. In her final interview, Yvonne said she and Benny had fallen asleep together and she woke up to him vomiting and their son entering their room crying. Police noted that in the last recounting, Yvonne said Benny was on the opposite side of the bed on which he was found. Police said Yvonne then became uncooperative. Officers canvassed the area and spoke with the neighbor who lived nearby in a trailer with his then-girlfriend. Meyer told police he believed that Yvonne had killed her husband, stating that Yvonne had a bad temper. Court documents state that Meyer had been living with a woman who lived near the Scruggs, and that woman said that Meyer and the Scruggs were friends. Police interviewed Meyer on July 26, 1985. He said he had known Yvonne since high school. He said that six weeks before Benny's death, the two were intimate with each other. He said that Yvonne had told him that if he wanted her, she knew how to get rid of Benny. 
On August 27, 1985, Yvonne Scruggs admitted to detectives that she had not told them of her sexual encounter with Meyer because she didn't think it was that important and was embarrassed to tell anyone that it had happened. She claimed it was the only time she had been intimate with Meyer and denied saying she would get rid of Benny if Meyer wanted her. While Yvonne looked like the primary suspect in the case, that would all change in 2006. At some point, Meyer would end up on trial for 10 counts of stalking jurors who had convicted him in a 2006 trial for threatening a judge. Meyer requested a meeting with the Wisconsin Rapids police chief to discuss Benny's case. Meyer had reportedly told an inmate that he walked into the house, walked into the bedroom, stabbed Benny once in the chest, walked out, went home, took a shower, took off his clothes, showered, got dressed, took the clothes and the knife, and went outside and threw them away. In 2012, Meyer told a detective that his DNA in the bedroom would prove he did it. Meyer said that he has had nightmares for years and that the murder basically ruined his life. Among other things, police said Meyer claimed that he had been at Yvonne's place for an intimate encounter a week before the murder, and he was sure his fingerprints would be in the bedroom. But in the course of the interview, Meyer also allegedly drew an intricate diagram of the Scruggs trailer, including the location of the missing knife, and admitted to knowing several other things about the crime scene, including that the door to the bedroom from the hallway wouldn't open, and that the back door of the trailer was screwed shut. Meyer also mentioned that, while he was incarcerated, he had spoken to two of his cellmates about all his problems, including two with ties to the Scruggs. In interviews with those inmates, they all noted that Meyer had claimed he and Yvonne were involved in an ongoing intimate relationship at the time of Benny's murder, and that she instructed him to throw the murder weapon into his garbage before the morning trash collection. He allegedly told another inmate that Benny had caught him and Yvonne together shortly before the murder. One inmate said Meyer waited outside in the trailer park and saw Benny and Yvonne come home. The inmate said Meyer told him he knew Yvonne would be in her son's room in the mobile home. Meyer said he picked that day for the murder because he knew trash would be picked up first thing in the morning. He also said that the trash collectors picked up the garbage with the knife in it while police were still investigating the crime scene. In 2015, Yvonne died of acute alcohol poisoning and was never charged with her husband's murder. Another cellmate told police in 2017 that Meyer also admitted the crime to him, referencing a deck of playing cards that cited the cold case, and said he was deliberately playing with the cops by pretending to be cooperative. He reportedly told the cellmate that he had killed Benny because Yvonne refused to be intimate with him again until her husband was dead and alleged that Yvonne led him into the trailer on the night of the murder. But the inmate would later recant the allegation. The same cellmate told police that he heard Meyer discussing the murder on a prison phone call. In recordings of the call to Meyer's mother, obtained by police, he allegedly said, I'm glad I killed that MFR, and I'm glad that witch is dead too. Maria Joanna Pacino was born on June 8, 1986. At the age of eight, she was living in Lemoore, California, and was a third grader at Ingval Elementary School in the San Joaquin Valley. Her mother described her as a helpful and thoughtful child who wanted to be a doctor when she grew up. 
On March 27, 1995, Maria was walking to the nearby Food King to buy a can of tuna for a snack. She was only two blocks from home, walking in broad daylight, while her mother, Arcelia Farrell, was home waiting for Maria to return, but she sadly never did. Not more than 15 minutes after Maria left, her mother ran out of the door to find her. She forgot her purse and keys and locked herself out of the apartment. By the time she climbed through a window, got the keys, and made her way to the market, another five minutes had passed. When she arrived at the market, Maria was nowhere to be found. A receipt from the store indicated little Maria had bought some food at 3.18 p.m. A woman told Arcia that she saw two men in a van kidnap Maria. But another witness told her the men were driving a white car. And then someone else said they found the can of tuna near some palm trees next to the market. Her mother heard so many rumors she didn't really know what to believe. Two weeks later, on April 9th, Maria's body was found in some bushes along Poso Creek in Kern County, about 60 miles south of Lemoore. After receiving an anonymous tip, an arrest warrant was issued for Navy Petty Officer First Class Jean Estel McCurdy. Investigators interrogated McCurdy aboard the aircraft carrier Abraham Lincoln off the coast of Japan. McCurdy had left two weeks after Maria's murder as part of Strike Fighter Squadron 22 for a routine six-month deployment to the Western Pacific. He allegedly found Maria walking away from the 19th Street Market, coaxed her into his vehicle, took her to his apartment in Hanford, and indecently assaulted her. He then killed her and disposed of her body. At trial, he admitted being near Maria's last known whereabouts, but denied kidnapping or killing her. Eric Douglas saw Maria in the Food King aisle near the ice cream display at around 3.43 p.m. About 15 minutes later, Douglas said he saw her in another store in the same shopping center as Food King. Another witness by the name of Michael Jackson saw McCurdy talking to Maria and holding her hand outside of the store. Jackson walked to his car about 15 feet from McCurdy's truck and saw him open the truck's passenger door and somebody short got inside. McCurdy then closed the door and walked around the truck to the driver's side. As Jackson drove off, he could no longer see Maria in the parking lot. Although his car's clock indicated this happened around 4 p.m., he estimated it was actually 3.50 p.m. because he had set the clock forward 10 minutes. A receipt from a video store in the same shopping center as Food King indicated McCurdy rented three adult videos at 3.28 p.m. that day. A receipt from another store in Lemoore indicated that he rented three more adult videos at 3.34 p.m. A third receipt showed he rented three more movies around 4.10 p.m. from another video store in Lemoore. Mary Smith lived next to McCurdy and previously had been in a brief romantic relationship with him. Smith's mother, Mary Lazaro, was visiting her on the day of Maria's disappearance. That evening, Lazaro heard what sounded like a child soft whimpering through the common wall shared with McCurdy's apartment. However, there were no children in the movie they were watching. Lazaro thought the whimpering was coming from McCurdy's apartment, but Mary told her he had no children. The next day, McCurdy and Mary were watching television in her apartment when a news bulletin came on about Maria's disappearance. McCurdy sat up, faced the television, and shifted uncomfortably. 
A few days after Maria's disappearance, Mary told McCarty she felt bad that the girl was missing. McCarty, who normally was an attentive listener, interrupted Smith in a hostile manner while not making eye contact with her. Sometime during the last week of March, McCarty shaved off his mustache. McCarty, who was in the United States Navy, was scheduled for a six-month deployment at sea starting around April 11th. However, in the week preceding the deployment and while at sea, one of McCarty's squadron mates noted he appeared unusually agitated, frustrated, and distant. McCarty's parents' house was in Bakersfield, near where Maria was found. McCarty's sister, Donna Holmes, helped lead investigators to him and testified at the trial. She testified he was familiar with this creek because it was a well-known local landmark. A shower curtain similar to the one given to McCarty would later be discovered partially buried approximately 500 yards upstream from where Maria was found. Carol Cacciaroni, a criminal investigator employed by the Navy and stationed on the same ship as McCurdy, interviewed him on April 18th. When Agent Cacciaroni asked McCurdy if he knew why she wanted to speak to him, he referred to Maria's disappearance. McCurdy explained he was renting adult-oriented videotapes at the shopping center's video store around the time she was abducted. He offered to be hypnotized to see if it would help him remember anything. McCurdy denied knowing what had happened to the little girl. He told the agent that before his deployment, he regularly visited his parents' home. When the agent informed McCurdy that Maria was found dead, he became very upset, started to cry, and asked if Maria had been abused. He explained he was upset because he had recently quit smoking and had been under some stress. The next day, McCurdy told the agent that he was feeling very disturbed and paranoid because everybody was pointing fingers at him and that he was sick to his stomach. McCurdy appeared visibly upset and had red and teary eyes, tightly clenched fists, and shaky movements. McCurdy said he wasn't sure if he should get a lawyer or not. When the agent asked why he thought he might need an attorney, he continued to cry and rock in his chair. He left the agent's office, but returned a short while later and appeared to be more relaxed. When Agent Cacciaroni ran into McCurdy a few days later, he acted standoffish and distant. Police searched McCurdy's storage unit in Lemoore and found a box of approximately 30 adult-oriented magazines, several of which had explicit titles and content focusing on teenage girls who were staged to appear younger than their actual age. McCurdy would later tell Bruce Ackerman, a federal deputy marshal assigned to the U.S. Postal Service and an expert on illegal adult content involving minors, that he had purchased the magazines. He also acknowledged the women in them looked younger than 18 years old. At McCurdy's trial, Deputy Ackerman testified that in his experience, in every case in which a person had possessed similar magazines, that person had expressed an unnatural interest in minors. Deputy Ackerman also testified at trial that, when asked about the day of Maria's disappearance, McCurdy said he could not remember what he had done after renting the videotapes. McCurdy's younger sister testified that he indecently assaulted her when they were children, and those assaults continued intermittently for over a decade. Finally, several years after the abuse had ended, McCurdy apologized to his sister and told her that one of the reasons why he never married was he was really afraid that he might abuse his own children. 
A Lamore police sergeant testified he interviewed Mary, McCurdy's ex-girlfriend, after he had been deployed. Mary told the sergeant that before his deployment, McCurdy said he shaved his mustache so he would not have to maintain it while at sea. Mary never told the sergeant about her mother hearing a child's whimper. McCurdy had been romantically involved with Mary, but denied being in her apartment after Maria's disappearance, as Mary had reconciled with her husband by then. In addition, McCurdy denied having the conversation about Maria in which Mary claimed he interrupted her. McCurdy basically denied any involvement with Maria's disappearance and death. He admitted to being edgy during his deployment, but claimed the stress of a new job with a lot of responsibility caused his bad mood. McCurdy admitted he lied to Deputy Ackerman about not knowing his whereabouts on the day of Maria's disappearance, but claimed he was embarrassed by having rented so many adult-oriented videotapes. McCurdy admitted to having twice visited the creek where Maria's body was found, but denied owning or possessing a shower curtain resembling the one found near her body. McCurdy admitted that his sister's confessions about them when they were younger were true, but claimed it was consensual. He and his sister had revealed to each other that their uncle had indecently assaulted both of them, but McCurdy denied having an unnatural interest in children. Investigators have not ruled out the possibility of a connection between Maria's death. Kern County detectives were also investigating if McCurdy could be responsible for the disappearance of two girls from Bakersfield. Four-year-old Jessica Martinez was kidnapped in 1990 and she was found buried in a field several days later, and three-year-old Daisy Herrera disappeared from her front yard in 1987 and has never been found. McCurdy was ultimately sentenced to death and has been at San Quentin Prison since 1997. Margaret Elizabeth Beck, who went by Peggy, was born on November 22, 1946. At the age of 16, Peggy was living with her parents and three younger sisters in Edgewater, Colorado. She was described as loving and was said to be very protective of her family. She was a student at North High School in Denver and was a longtime Girl Scout excited to be a counselor for the first time at the upcoming Girl Scout camp that was set to start in August of 1963. The camp was at the Mile High Girl Scout camp at the Flying G Ranch near Deckers, Colorado, bordering the Pike National Forest. On the night of August 17th, Peggy's tentmate, Claudia Schrad, was sick and went to the infirmary where she would spend the night, leaving Peggy all alone in her tent. The next morning, the last day of camp, Claudia returned to the tent to fetch Peggy for breakfast and made a horrifying discovery. Peggy was still in her sleeping bag, deceased. There was no sign of a disturbance or struggle in Peggy's tent, and since there was no apparent physical damage to her body, the death was assumed to be from natural causes. However, several hours later, five finger marks appeared on her throat, and the coroner ruled the death a homicide by strangulation. The coroner also determined that she had been indecently assaulted. More than 25 people were sleeping near Peggy's tent that night, but because the closest was almost 10 yards away, None of the other girls or adults recalled hearing or seeing anything out of place. Then, on August 20th, the caretaker of the Girl Scout camp volunteered to take a polygraph test regarding the murder. 
Alvin Sherwood, known as Slim, was 67 years old and the only male allowed at the camp at the time of Peggy's death. Jefferson County Sheriff Harold Bray was heading the investigation at the time and felt the test was necessary to protect Alvin and confirm that he was not involved in Peggy's death. Alvin passed and was eliminated as a suspect. On September 6th, Ansel Teague Jr. was involved in a minor traffic accident in Denver. During the investigation, the patrolmen were surprised when Ansel confessed to Peggy's murder. Ansel was a 32-year-old former mental patient and was arrested when he confessed to Peggy's murder and said he was in the area hunting rabbits. But upon questioning, his statements were inconsistent and he knew nothing about the murder that was not public knowledge, so his confession was discounted and he was released. An extensive investigation at the time did not reveal a suspect. Law enforcement collected scrapings under her fingernails and submitted them for DNA testing, but the case would go cold for nearly 57 years. Then, in 2007, evidence originally collected at the crime scene led to a creation of a John Doe DNA profile, which was later entered into CODIS. More than a decade later, in 2019, a more complex profile was created and sent for investigative genetic genealogy testing. It would become the oldest cold case in history at the time to be solved through genetic genealogy. Her killer was identified as James Raymond Taylor, but authorities could not determine if he was still alive to face justice. An arrest warrant was issued for Taylor, who was born in December 1939 and would be in his 80s now. Investigators located and met with Taylor's immediate family members, who were very cooperative, but they had not had contact with Taylor since the 1970s. They said Taylor was married in Colorado in 1961 and had a child in Colorado in the early 1960s. Taylor also lived in Edgewater in the early 1960s and worked as a TV repairman. It's possible that Taylor knew of the Girl Scouts camp because he went to the area to test ham radios that he built. Taylor's last known whereabouts were in the Las Vegas area in 1976. He does have a criminal history in 1972 and 74 in the Las Vegas area, but details about his criminal history were not released. Taylor is likely no longer alive, but it hasn't been proven that he's deceased, and so as of 2022, he remains a wanted man. Thanks for joining me today on Southern Girl Crime Stories. Please be sure to check out my YouTube channel for these stories, along with photos of victims, suspects, location of murders, and more. As always, your support is very much appreciated, and I look forward to seeing y'all next time.